Okay, well, again, good morning. We will be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So whether that's uh, the actual Bible in your hands or your smartphone, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we will pick up there in a moment. If you have been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we have entered into a time in our Advent season as we are anticipating and preparing for Christmas, which is the celebration and the remembrance of our God, the God of the scriptures coming down to take on the form of a human as fully human and fully God and initiating a newness of life, redeeming humanity's sin and conquering death. This is the good news that we hold on to as the writer of Hebrews describes as an anchor for our souls. Two weeks ago, we started this all with a glimpse of the creator God in all of his cosmic significance and magnificence, the one who the Bible declares all things were created through him and for him, and later says all things are held together by him. He is the personal being sustaining all of the particles and the molecules, atomic structure, quarks, and all their intricacies, and all of the dimensions that are known and are yet to be known in our great universe. He created it all, he sustains it all, and in him all things hold together. And if you were with us this last week, Steve took it a step further, reminding us that the radiance of this glorious God made itself manifest in the person of Jesus. He is, as scripture says, the exact imprint of God. Jesus said to his apprentices, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So in making the triune God available to the eye, to the ear, and to the touch, this man God, the incarnate deity, makes three incredible claims to his listeners then and now. First, he makes an exclusive claim that he is the creator God of all the cosmos. The cosmic significance is a person that we have touched. And as Paul put it, in him, in Jesus, we live and we move and we have our being. Secondly, he makes an inclusive claim that all are welcome to come and put their trust in him as the one and only God. His kingdom, as he says to us, is available. He says to each of us, come unto me, all of you. Lastly, Jesus, this radiance of the glorious God, he makes an intrusive claim. And it is this, that you, the listener, have to make a decision. What are we going to do with this man who claims himself to be Lord of all? You must simply accept or reject the Son. It's not a matter of clarity. Jesus made himself very clear about who he was, about where he had come from, and about what he was up to in the world. And so we are only left with two choices, accept the king or reject the king. So that was the past two weeks. So the question is, where are we going this morning? What we are left to wrestle with this morning is that if there is a God, 
who created all of this in all of its complexities and all of its seeming implausibility. And this God then revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Then the question this morning is, what did God reveal about himself? We have categories for lords and gods and kings, but what did the person of Jesus reveal to us about this God? By looking at Jesus, we ask, what is his nature? What is his substance? And what is he up to? This is not, as many have uh, presumed or stated, an errant or an unfitting inquiry. We can confidently ask this question, for the scriptures declare that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. This morning, it's our primary goal to answer the question that at his core, what did Jesus reveal to us about God? As we unpack this this morning, I want to call our attention to two specifics that the incarnate Christ reveals to us about God. First, he reveals to us his person or his nature. Secondly, he reveals to us his purpose or another way of saying that is his mission. As one commentator put it, Jesus shows us who God is and simply he shows us what he's up to. That's what Jesus does who God is, and what he's up to. So to begin, please now go to uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says this, You have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we get to gather as your people to set our eyes on you, to call uh, our attention back to uh, the simple realities of your greatness and your goodness. Would you give us eyes to see you clearly this morning? Amen. In this poem from the early church, we get a saturated insight into what early followers of Jesus thought about his birth, what they thought about Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. Encapsulated in this poem, they give us an interpretation of his incarnation. First, uh, this morning, we're going to unpack the first half of the poem and then the second half of the poem. And in it, we will see that the second half of the poem gives context for the first half of the poem. So, first half of the poem. In dictating the first half of the poem, Paul calls attention to the person of God or his nature. Again, this is what Paul says. He says, have the same mindset of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. From the very beginning of Scripture, the Creator God, Yahweh, shows Himself and is shown in stark contrast to the human standard. He is consistently upending and inverting cultural norms that look to perpetuate, build up, and support the rich, the strong, the good-looking, the powerful, the royal, and the firstborn. Starting with Cain and Abel, God chooses Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. It is Jacob who gets the birthright, not Esau, the firstborn. Joseph is chosen for generational blessing over his 11 older brothers. When it comes to Saul, the strong and the charismatic first king of God's people, the firstborn in his royal line is not chosen, but the insignificant and the lowly shepherd boy from a pedestrian family is chosen. And he himself is the youngest and the least impressive of his brothers, no less. And when the long-awaited Messiah enters the world he created, he does so via Mary, a poor young teenage girl. Encapsulating all this, listen to her words, Mary's words in Luke chapter 1. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. It's the Lord who has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble and the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Clearly, this was the nature, the makeup, the heart, um, the imago Dei that Yahweh desired his special creation to possess. But why? Well, this was clearly his own heart, and this was his way. He knew that the idolized and the power brokers of the world look to the externals and to the outward appearances. But he, Yahweh, looks at the heart. And now, as Jesus steps onto the stage, this creator God, his nature is about to become perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus. Here's Paul continuing in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Despite looking back over the course of history and seeing what we've discussed so far, God's preference for the lowly, the poor, the overlooked and the despised, the second, the third, or the, the twelfth born, we still see the same poisoned, sinful heart rising to the surface. Even the lowly that he lifts up often show their cards, and they operate in the same way that the powerful do, their predecessors, those that they replaced. We could call this spirit, for the sake of... Um, uh, conversation this morning, or this disposition, the human empire. It is the human empire that says, I will use everything to my advantage. If I, will, if I have power, I'll use it to my advantage. If I have money, I'll use it to my advantage. In fact, one of the most prevailing issues in every human society is that the rich often use their money to get richer, 
Those with power often use it to get more power, and the gap tends to grow between the haves and the have-nots. We all naturally want to use what we have to our own advantage. But enter this incarnate deity, Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the one who starts in the place of ultimate power and voluntarily enters into the fray. The holy enters the havoc of death and experiences it from the inside. The untouchable becomes decidedly vulnerable. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down on my own accord. And then next, Jesus, this cosmic power who voluntarily makes himself nothing, goes around saying things in a peculiar way. He acts differently than those with power do. And then he starts saying things like, oh, in the kingdom, the, the last, they'll be first, and the first will be last. Or, well, you see the Gentiles over there. See, they lord their power over one another. But with you, it's not going to be that way. In a comical interaction with his students, James and John, uh, the two brothers approach their master with a proposition. When he gets elevated to his messianic throne, well, they, they want to be his right-hand men. And for extra persuasion, they got their mommy involved in this request. Yeah, get mom involved. That always works. Jesus gently tells them that they simply have no idea what they are talking about. They do not know what they are asking. And this story can be found in Matthew chapter 20, by the way. But notice that Jesus, he does not rebuke their desire to be great. What does he do? Jesus redefines what greatness is. He says, you want to be great? Good. The greatest among you must be the servant to all the rest. Did you catch that? The greatest among you is the one who serves, not the one being served. The greatest one is the one who's doing the serving. And here is Paul again from Philippians 2. He says, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he became a servant. Jesus doesn't do away with the longing to be great. He does not do away with power in and of itself. Jesus redefines them. He gives power and greatness its truest definition, which is this, self-sacrificial love. This is the epitome of God's nature. It's the dance, as C.S. Lewis put it, of the triune God as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit joyously submit to the other in eternal love. It is manifested in his birth. Jesus manifests, manifests this nature in his life. And as Steve reminded us last week, it is white hot at the cross. But the second point that I want to make this morning, and I want to be very clear here, is that what we have talked about up until this point, uh, the first half in the poem of Philippians chapter 2, means nothing without the second half of the poem. 
What the second half of the poem reminds us is that although Jesus reveals the nature of God, Jesus also reveals to us the mission of God. Yes, celebrate, children. We can all hear you. So let's pick back up in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Here's the second part. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, but I don't need a God who is just humble or a God who is just a servant, a God who just sees the brokenhearted or just makes himself nothing. I need a God and a king who brings rulers and enemies to their knees. And public enemy number one, as Jesus reveals, is death itself. Tim Keller says this, Jesus knows that the only way that he is going to interrupt any of our funerals is by causing his own. Death says to him, touch me and I'll touch you. To which Jesus responds, well, come on then. The significance of this cosmically glorious God who holds ultimate authority, power, and greatness is not that he simply humbles himself to the point of a man or death or a criminal's death. No, his, the significance is in doing that, he comes after death. He chases it down and he defeats it. This was the purpose of the incarnate deity. He has come and he has established his reign. And every abusive, power-mongering, brutal, and savage power will bow its knee to this amazingly good and humble king. Isaiah said as much in chapter 9. He says this, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of this government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Daniel 2 foretold this reality when he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar a half century before Jesus. He says this, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, after you, another kingdom will arise, but it'll be inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, it will crush and break all the others. But in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. So what's the application this Christmas season? Brothers and sisters, it is that we now live in this kingdom that will endure forever. The humble king has conquered the kingdoms of death before him, and he has established his reign. And in doing so, 
he has revealed to us his kingdom's ethos. Unlike the human heart, unlike the empire spirit, or other worldly kingdoms that we are so familiar with, where pride is the means and lording it over others is the method. The lifeblood of the kingdom is God's heart. The spirit marked by humility, service, and considering others better than yourself. For that is the way of our king who loved us and gave himself for us. Empires dominate and they conquer others. The kingdom is about humbling yourself and serving others. The weapons of empire are force, threats, and military might. The weapons of the kingdom are love, prayer, generosity, and foot washing. One is marked by pride and superiority, the other by humility, service, and meekness. Our enemy and the empire spirit are like roaring lions, scripture tells us, looking for someone to devour. By contrast, our king is a different kind of lion. He is called the Lion of Judah, but in Revelation, what John sees is a lamb looking as if it has been slain. All power and authority are his. He has the power over the raging lion that is our enemy, and he will one day use that power to destroy our enemy. But the heart of God that is put on display is one of meekness and humility, that he would go from the highest, most exalted place in the universe to the depths of, hu of sinful humanity and then into the depths of human sin and death on a cross, where he became sin who knew no sin. And dying in a horrific place of darkness and suffering, he was despised and rejected by all mankind. There is no lower place in the universe than this. In this, in the person of Jesus, we see the heart of God, his stunning and unsurpassed humility expressed through the incarnation through the cross, which cuts against human selfishness and human empire. In his birth and in his death, we witness his humility and in the resurrection, his victory. Our God is now exalted in the highest place once more. The name above all names, that in the end, every knee will bow to this Prince of Heaven, crucified for the world. This eternal, all-powerful Son who created and sustains the universe is stepping into his creation on Christmas. Let's pray.